Hello and welcome to Rearview, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew, and this is episode 36. I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Noakes, who is, amongst many other things, the chairman of the Guild of Motoring Writers. Welcome to Rearview, Andrew. I'd like to start off by asking you, what does the chairman of the Guild of Motoring Writers do? Um, well, that's a very good question. Um, I, I suppose the, uh, the the best thing that the Guild of Motoring Writers chairman does, from my point of view, um, is is take the credit. Um, one of the nice things. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Somebody said this to me at an event that we ran recently. We did a thing called, a, which is a regular event we do every year, called the Bring Your Own Vehicle Day. The the idea mm-hmm. being that motoring writers, as a breed, tend to spend a lot of time um, driving other people's cars because it's just what they do for a living, um, and uh, and they very often have something interesting um, of their own. And um, and this was is sort of an event which gives them a chance to to bring it out and and you know share them and talk about them and all the rest of it. So we go somewhere interesting, and the idea is you you bring your own vehicle to do that in. Um, and uh, this year we went to a place called Studio Four Three Four in Potter's Bar, um, and then went to the Shuttleworth Collection, which is is not too far away. Um, Studio Four Three Four is brilliant. Um, it's a a, a a vehicle storage facility basically mm. um so it stores vehicles from people um but it also has is the collection of the guy who owns it roger dudding and he's got this massive collection of of classic cars of all sorts that he's collected over the years so he went to have a look at that um and and somebody said to me at that event you know it's a great event and i sort of said well it's not down to me it's down to the people who organized it and he said oh yes but you can take the credit and i thought well, actually yes that's a good point i ought to do that i ought to do that so i <laughs> so i get to take the credit when we do something something good like that um Really, apart from that, it's about, I mean, partly it's about being a, a kind of a, a visible um, mouthpiece, if you like, for, for the Guild. Um, and it's also about um, not, not quite, um, I mean, I don't make all the decisions. I think people tend to think, oh, well, you must be the guy that actually sort of does everything. And, and it's not true at all. The, the Guild is run by a committee of a dozen or so people. Um, and really, it's my job just to make sure that that committee um, works well and, and does useful things, um, because that's you know that's what the guild is there for. It's there to to try and make life easier for motoring writers and try and improve the communication between motoring journalists and and the industry they report on. So that's what that's what we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'll, I want to explore the guild later sure. on, uh, but first of all, I will do uh, what I always do, which is. Um, Take a step back into memory lane uh, and try and get an idea of when you first got interested in cars. Um, is, is, has it always been there as long as you can remember or was this a later thing that developed? It, it's been there longer than I can remember. Um, I, I'm, I'm told that the first word I ever said was car. I kind of sat up in a pram and pointed at a thing going down the road and went, car. Um, so, so it's always been there. I've obviously always been interested in in cars of, of some reason um and i do remember um when i was very very young and i must have been two or three years old we lived on a house that was right by a set of traffic lights and it had a, a brick wall around the garden and in this brick wall mm. was one of those one of those wrought iron gates you know those black kind of iron gate things so it's, it's mostly sort of holes so i used to i used to sit there in this gate twice the size that i was you know but i used to be able to, to stand there at this gate and just watch all the cars come up and stop at the traffic lights and then drive away um so by the time i was three or four i could 
I could recognise all the cars and most of them by sound as well as by <laughs> by by sight, you know. And it's it just went from there. And no, I recognise that hubcap or exactly, yeah, that's yeah. that's because yeah, could... yeah, that's the height you're at, so, exactly. you know, and, and the, the tail light, half, not the top half. That's right. <laughs> Standing there with your little metal uh, drinks cup against the rails, going, let me out, let me out. <laughs> so obviously cars, uh, interesting uh, for you when you were younger. Did that uh, carry, I mean, how did that manifest itself as you got older? Did Were you, and this is a bit of a cliche, but it, it's things that many people I've talked to on here have, have said, but were you in the corner of your classroom doodling cars <laughs> Uh, as you were going through, or uh, were you quietly, secretly reading magazines at the back, that sort of thing? It, it was something like that. Uh, I mean, uh, I've never been able to draw very well, so I didn't doodle cars really. But um, but yeah, it was always something that was that was there. And when there were opportunities to to do something um, that related to cars in some way, I, I always did. I remember we, we did a, a one stage we did an English project and we had to do a magazine and we had to get into little teams and, and do a magazine. And so I, I found another guy in the class that was into cars as well. And we did a car magazine, you know, so we did a, we did a little <laughs> magazine that had sort of reports on Formula One and, and how to do it articles and all sorts of things. So, so I suppose that was, that was kind of uh, an opportunity that, that meant it could, it could start to sort of develop a bit. Um, and, and then I, as I uh, as I sort of went through school, I was quite good at maths and science sort of um, subjects. Um, and I ended up kind of concocting this plan that said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to university and I'm going to study um, automotive engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea being that either if I can do that and succeed at that, then I can either go into the motor industry and get an interesting job in the, in the motor industry, or I can write about cars, which is what I really, I think, want to do. Um, and and hopefully the the engineering study that I've done will be something that informs my writing. So you always liked writing, even even when you were in school. That that was a, a I, I don't want to say passion because that that belittles it <laughs> in this day and age where you know every influencer is talking about that just do what you're passionate about. No, I don't mean, but it, it was something that you really enjoyed and got a kick out of. It was, yeah, and and writing um, a particular s- sort of writing. I mean, it's one thing that that did come out when I was at school was um, what I was interested in actually was was factual writing, and I remember there was um, a mock exam that we did. English language exam where you had to write a, a story and you had sort of five options and, and they gave you f- some scenarios and it was do a bit of creative writing and write a story around these things. And the fifth option that was there for, for people who didn't like any of the first four was basically to write an essay. It was to write a, a factual piece. Um, hmm. And I did that. Um, and it was kind of the first time I'd ever done anything like that, really. Um, and it came out really well. And I thought, well, actually, I'm uh, pretty good at that. I'll, I'll do that again. Um, so, um, so yeah, it was, um, I was interested in that, that sort of writing about things which are factual rather than a creative, a particularly sort of creative process of coming up with a story out of my own head. You know? um, hmm. And, um, and so those two things, I think, going together, the interest in the sort of the, the technical and the engineering side. Um, and also the interest in th- this factual writing. Um, I think those, those two things actually stood me in good stead for, for what I later went on to do. And, it, and it's actually something that's really important that people going into the industry need the, uh, the motoring 
publishing industry um, need to understand that the job is, is motoring journalism. Um, uh, people tend to come in with a massive passion for the motoring bit, um, mm. but you've also got to have a massive passion for the journalism bit. If you don't, if you're not actually excited by putting words together and then putting magazine features together or whatever it is you do, web pages, whatever kind of content you, you produce, if you're not passionate about that content creation part of the job as well, then you're not actually going to a enjoy it and b be good at it so you've got to be passionate about both things that's that is a very good point um so how did how did the degree go then uh it went okay um it was um uh, it, it did a couple of useful things i think one is that um, i mean obviously it taught me a lot about cars and about um automotive technology and about how the things are made and how the things are designed um all of which turned out to be useful later on um it also uh, gave me an opportunity to realise that as an engineer, I wasn't very good. Um, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was all right, but I wasn't a genius as, as an engineer, you know. And there were people on. You say course... you weren't coming up with revolutionary solutions to issues. Well, is that exactly. What you're saying? I, I could, I could cope. You know, I, I could, I, I was on the same page as everybody else. But there were two or three people in in that class, and it wasn't a massive class. It was only twenty, twenty five. Um, but there were two or three in that class particularly um, who were extraordinary and I couldn't keep up with them. Um, uh, and I and I thought as I was doing it, I thought, well, if I'm not going to be as good as those guys, I, I don't want to do this. I want to go and do something where, where I'm, I'm better than that. You, you know, I don't want to be mediocre at something. I want to be really good. So um, so it kind of proved to me, I think, that the, the job I should do shouldn't be engineering it should be something else okay so after university you come out of that uh, i presume you've got your degree yeah. um yeah uh you've you've come out of that you've now got this uh, knowledge of as you said of uh, what makes a car tick how it's put together the sort of challenges about all that sort of thing um dealing with design and incorporating that um the sort of partnerships that need to be involved yeah what did you move on to after that then well i um I looked at a lot of different things and, and spent a, uh, basically 18 months trying to get a job. This was in the teeth of a recession. This was 1992, 93. Um, mm. And so it was quite difficult to get a job in anything at the time. But I, 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 what I set my stall out to try and do was to, um, was to get a job in, in automotive media. Um, now, I hadn't got a clue how to do that. I didn't know anything at all about the business. I didn't know anybody in the business. Um, so I was starting from a complete blank sheet of paper. So, you, so you're doing it the uh, the easy way then? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was doing it the only way I knew. Um, but, it, but but no, I don't think it was the easiest, the easiest way of doing it. Um, what I did do, which I, was quite smart, I think, was I realised, I, I sort of was doing all of this when I was still at, at Loughborough University where I did my my engineering degree um and and towards the end of that i kind of realized that i wanted to go this route of, of going into media rather than into the motor industry and so i took advantage of the library at the university and i read every book there was on writing journalism magazines the media anything like that so mm -hmm. so i kind of learned alongside doing the engineering stuff i did learn some stuff about how to write articles how to structure an article um 
some of the things that are important about writing features, those kinds of things. So I, I did start to learn some of that. Um, and then having come out and, and graduated and got the degree and thought, what do I do now? Um, obviously, I started, I, I did what you did in those days, which is you bought the Media Guardian on a Monday mm. and you trolled yep. through the, the ads at the back to, to try and find a media job. I applied to lots of media jobs um, and, um, uh, and didn't get them. Uh, and, and at the same time, um, I started freelancing. Uh, I, I just started sending things to people, you know, writing articles about stuff and sending them, um, and, and saying, what do you think? Is this of any interest kind of thing? And got a little bit of traction. I got some things published, um, and gradually got more and more published until eventually, um, what it meant was that I could walk into a job interview, um, as it turned out with fast car magazine um mm -hmm. <laughs> and i could uh you know when they said well are you any good at this how, how do we know that you know why should we take you on i could pull out yeah. a portfolio of stuff and say well here's a load of articles that i've i've had published um yeah i mean and that's important because today it's easy for someone to say well here's my website or here's my youtube channel or you know whatever it, whatever the particular job they're going it's it's uh, in somewhat. It 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 is that. Uh, well, I've got my thing here. Have that, there you go. Just just look at that. So it, remembering that you do need to put together a portfolio is um, it is an important thing. I think, and you know, and I'm not even really in the industry. You know, it's not like I'm I'm looking at motoring journalism as a career. But it it may seem like a bit of an old fashioned uh, aspect to it, but it's still vital. Absolutely, yeah, it is, um, and I think it's, I think it is vital. It, it's vital. There's two things I think you've got to do. The first is you've got to sort of demonstrate that you can produce content that people want, whether that's the written word or whether it's video or audio or whatever it is. You've got to, you've got to demonstrate you can do that, uh, and you can do that by having a blog or having a YouTube channel or whatever. I think there's a step beyond that, which is still important and is is something that kind of gets lost a bit because everybody says oh everybody can be a publisher now and i've said it as well everybody can be a publisher now you, you just get your blog and oh results. you can you can but <laughs> you can you can produce a blog or you can produce a youtube channel that nobody likes nobody's interested mm. in and it's still there it's still published um whereas back when i was starting and nobody had ever heard of blogs um and youtube didn't exist um, what you wrote for was magazines and newspapers, mm. um, and the 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 sort of the great um, extra bit that you get from having to work for a magazine or a newspaper is you have to go through a filtering process. You can't just yes, absolutely. You can't just take something, create some content, bung it online, and there you go. That's it. You actually have to persuade somebody else to publish it. Somebody else has to read mm. it or listen to it or whatever and say, hey, this is really good. I'm going to stick this in my magazine or newspaper. So there's a kind of quality control process there. So yeah. if, if you can get something published in, in something that somebody else produces and, and put that in your portfolio, it then really demonstrates that you've got some ability because it means that somebody else has trusted you to, to produce content for them. Yeah, because that is uh, something that is is quite tricky. If you are conscientious, conscientious enough that you are looking to improve and, and produce the best that you can produce at that time, it is difficult uh, if you do it online by your own steam 
to know whether what you are writing is actually or producing is actually good. I mean, you get occasional comments and stuff, but as you said, if nobody comments, you don't know. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, because yeah. we we went uh, Alan and I with our our new show, we we went a long time before we really heard from anybody. Uh, that, and then we started to get interaction, and we started to ask. You know, once we knew there was people listening, which was a a shock, uh, but b useful, <laughs> because you know I'm I'm talking in my kitchen now. Alan was in his house or a hotel room, and we were talking to each other. And then we just happened to be putting that conversation out. So, you know, as far as we're concerned, we were talking to each other. Oh, oh, crikey, other people like this as well. But the the point was that once we knew people were listening, we could ask them questions. So we could say, what did you think of that bit? Would you prefer this to be longer, shorter? You know, and all those sort of questions, which, which uh, people need to do if they are producing their own content. They do need, I, I, I believe anyway, that you need to be asking questions. You need to be checking stats on you know when do people drop off watching a video or you know is it five seconds in okay then you're doing something fundamentally wrong or is it halfway through it, it's that sort of stuff you if you're if you're serious about wanting to produce good stuff you need to constantly be reviewing and constantly be considering what you can improve absolutely and, and if you can get that interaction particularly with people who are working in the industry um, then, mm. then a you've got a chance you might be able to to sell things to people who are actually in a position to buy them and, and make a career out of it. Um, and also, you, you're going to get some informed comment because what you can get sometimes from you know the massive uh, kind of audience that there is on the internet is you might get some some comment, but it may not necessarily be helpful. You know, I mean, everybody's looked at the comments you get on YouTube videos, and a lot of those aren't helpful. Um, in a lot of ways but if you can if you can get some feedback from you know from editors or whoever in in the industry itself then you, you suddenly you're going to make massive improvements if you pay attention yeah. to what they say because they're, they're actually giving you you know um comments born of long experience and and also you know they're not going to tell you stuff just for the sake of it they're, they're going to say well you know do this it will make it better it'll make it what i want in my mag so i'll buy it um, yeah. So it's really sort of useful, focused feedback that you that you're going to get. So, um, so that's, no, that's, that's the, the name of the game, really, is to try and do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. So you have a job interview with um, Fast Cars. I, I am hoping then, for the sake of this, moving on, that you uh, get a job with Fast Cars. Yeah, well, it, it would it would be a rubbish end to the story if I hadn't got the job. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, I had an interview. They said go away. So. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I gave up. I did have some interviews where they said get away. Um, plenty, in fact, um, or or never never got an interview at all. Um, so uh, I, I suppose one of the messages that comes out of that is, and it applies to journalism just as much, is is be persistent. It's something it's something mm. that I see with the, some of the students that I work with, um, that they, you know, you, you sort of say, right, how, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this this story? What we need is an interview with such and such a person. So they send an email to such and such a person and they don't get a reply. And mm. and, and the world ends, you know, they say, oh, it's terrible. You can't do the feature. Yes, well, for a start, you could follow them up. You could send another email. You could phone them up. You could, you know, go down there and actually knock on the door and say hello. You, you, you could find somebody else to interview. There's all sorts of things you can do. But instead mm. of just being disheartened and stopping at that point, you've got to get up and have another go. You know, keep on trying. Yes. Um, 
and that, and that's what I did trying trying get my job. You know, I applied to lots and lots of jobs, did lots and lots of interviews, and in the meantime, set up myself as a as a freelance, and and I earned a bit of money. But more importantly, I I managed to put together this portfolio that ultimately got me where I wanted, which is um, a staff job on on a car magazine. So uh, so yes, I did get the job on fast car, um, and uh, I kind of got that partly because I could demonstrate that I'd had some work published Um, and also because what they were looking for was a technical writer Um, so I could say well here I am I've got a degree in automotive engineering Um, I've had some work published I'm the guy you need Um, unfortunately they agreed (laughs) so what what does a or what did a but I presume it's very similar to today but what does a staff writer do for you know anybody in my audience uh, anyone listening doesn't actually know what that is right well um, a staff writer on a magazine is um it's kind of the entry-level job on a magazine um so what you what you largely do is make coffee um, okay but <laughs> uh, it, it is very important to learn to make decent coffee um yes but um but also what you what you do is you will you will write stories you will write i mean the first thing i was given to write was uh, I still remember was um, a, a little uh, sort of news piece. A fast car used to lead off their news pages with a, uh, a rendering, a drawing of a car, mm-hmm. um, and they used to get um, uh, a sort of a tame designer that they knew to to pick a car every month and do a kind of a modified version. So he would basically sort of restyle it with a sort of a body kit and change things and put nice wheels on it and stuff like that and and so it was all completely fictional but it was kind of here's a car and look what you you know it would be possible to do to to do with it um and then somebody had to write some words to go with it and so they shoved this drawing at me Um, to make it realistic yeah um (laughs) so they shoved this drawing at me um uh, it was a capri um uh and um uh, and said you know write 200 words about that off you go um, and so that mm. was that was what I had to do. So um, so yeah, you get to write features, you get to write news stories, probably, um, and do whatever else needs to be done. And, and what I found was really interesting, and again turned out to be very useful, was that Fastcar was a, a pretty small team. Um, there was a maximum of um, editorially four of us, and um, what it meant was you got involved in everything. So. You know, I'd been there five minutes, and and in fact, the, the the week that I joined was the week that they were on press. So it was the, the week the magazine was being finished. Theoretically, it was when they were supposed Talk to be supposed into the to deep finished. end. Then, well, yeah, I mean, the, the first day I was there, I went home <laughs> at six p.m. because I had to go and book into the accommodation that I was I was staying in while I I found somewhere permanent to live. Um, mm. The rest of the week, I didn't get home before midnight. <laughs> because that's that they were late and they were on press and and that's the way the way it worked you know um but i i was there you know very very short time and suddenly people were showing me proofs of covers and saying what do you think you know which is well that must have been brilliant uh, from a from a personal point of view because you know a you've got a job you really wanted yeah. but b you are right in the weeds of it you are seeing how absolutely everything is done that's right uh you have you've got the muck under your fingernails from every aspect <laughs> you know it, it, so this must be fantastic you must be going this is brilliant it, it, it is i mean it's it, it massively you know interesting and exciting 
um, uh, and particularly once you realise that you actually have some influence over how these things, you know, people aren't asking you what you think, again, just for the sake of it. They're, they're doing it because they, they want to try and get a good idea out of you. you know? So if you can come up with something and say, well, why don't we change the colour like this? Or, 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 you know, that title could say this instead. And somebody goes, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Bang, there it is. Um, and a week later, they've printed 50,000 copies of it. And you think, wow, <laughs> that, you know, I did that. And, and yeah. it, you get a massive buzz from from doing that, and and that that doesn't really go away. Um, it, you know, you suddenly have this this influence over being able to create a product and produce something that people like, and, and that's, that's that's fantastic. And and it was um, an enormously you know, kind of useful and rewarding learning experience because it meant that I could get involved in all sorts of different areas of the business, which perhaps on a a bigger magazine of a, you know, a more important publishing company, I perhaps wouldn't have been able to do because they would have had a bigger team and, and, uh, and people would have been more kind of working on their little bit of it rather than everybody having to pitch in. Um, uh, I mean, one of the things that I do a lot of now is teaching people to use um, InDesign, which is page, page layout software for, mm. for magazines and newspapers. Um, and I got started doing page layout really because on Fastcar we didn't have um, a designer in the in the office our designer actually worked remotely um, and um, that's quite forward thinking well possibly um, <laughs> probably out of necessity it, but was, it was out of necessity <laughs> rather than it being a strategic decision um, and in fact I mean you're going you're going back to what does a staff writer do one of my duties was every day um, at about 455. Um, I had to run down the high street in Orpington, where we were based, to the post office with a package that had um, a disc, uh, an Amstrad PCW disc with copy on it, and uh, a, uh, a pile of transparency photographs um, to send by special delivery to our designer so that he could work on them the following day. Which all sounds now I say it, it's uh, you know in these days of email and and you know zipped archives and dropbox shared and all of that. drives it, and all that it, yeah, yeah. It all sound, and cloud computing all that it sounds archaic but anyway that's what we used to do we used to package all this up in an envelope and then i had to hair down to the post office and uh, and stick it through special and delivery. so full of risk well, as well yes i always thought you know one day we're going to send a package and it's we're never going to see it again and it's going to be the one that has the cover pictures in and stuff like that <laughs> it never happened but i was every time oh. i did it i thought I, I don't like this. It's, it's, I don't know it's, if I could take the stress. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what it meant was that whenever, you know, he would send us a, a disc with layouts back um, that, that was sort of completed. Um, and, of course, we would look at it and then and somebody would say, ah, that, that picture's been cropped wrong. We needed the other corner because it's mentioned in the story or, you know, we need to write a caption or whatever. Um, and so we we needed the capability of being able to do little tweaks to layouts. Mm. And we didn't really have that. So I kind of learned how to do it so that if we needed to move a picture around or something, I could say, well, I'll, you know, we won't spend three days sending it back to the designer and him sending it back to us. I'll just do it yeah. now and it'll take five minutes, you know? Um, so there were all sorts of things like that, where there were things, um, sort of learning experiences and, and a different a sort of a wide range of skills that I was able to get involved in you know I was able to go out and shoot my own pictures for stories and stuff like that um, and learn how to do that which was was fantastic so how long were you at Fastcar 
I was there. Um, well, I, I, I was there from this was 1994. This was middle of 94. Um, and, and I was a staff writer for about six months and then they made me technical editor. And mm-hmm. then about six months after that, they made me deputy editor. Um, and our editor at the time um, was kind of working on other magazine projects as well because he was about the most senior editor in the building. So although he was, was technically was editor of Fascar, he was really spending most of his time working on other things. So effectively, I was running the magazine at that point. Um, mm. And I stayed there, I suppose, about two years in total. And then um, the the publishing company that published Fastcar decided it was going to do what was effectively was a, a an old fast car kind of magazine because a fast car was for sort of tuned modified cars um yep. and they decided they wanted to do the same thing but for older cars so instead of you know fast car at, the, at that point was things like modified um renault 5 gt turbos and 205 gti's and uh, uh rs escorts and that kind of stuff um, yeah. And what they wanted to do was was a magazine that looked at the older generation of stuff. So it was it was Capris and Mantas and Rover SD1s and all of that. Um, and so they put together this magazine that was called Retro. And the guy that was going to be editor of that saw it all the way through the process uh, of sort of inventing the magazine and creating it and deciding what it was going to be. Um, and And then decided to leave. So just at the point where they were kind of halfway through issue one, um, he left and they needed an editor. And so they came to me and said, do you fancy doing it? And I said, yes, I would love to. Um, so I ended up being editor of retro as it was called, um, from, um, from issue one. Cool. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it no, was. no, I mean, it was it, cool. <laughs> because, because absolutely, because, uh, you're at the birth of a magazine. I mean, you, you've, you've cut your teeth effectively, uh, on knowing what a magazine, what it takes to make a magazine and produce a magazine. Yes. Um, and now you're you're in charge of your own. That, that's which, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, two two years ish after you start full time employment in this is just. Yeah. I mean, again, that, you probably didn't think about it at the time, but that must have been just brilliant. It, it was an amazing um, kind of opportunity to do something, um, and um, and also, I mean, something I found ever since really is I, I constantly had to keep sort of recalibrating what I wanted to do and where I was, where I was heading. If there was any heading really, and very often there hasn't been. Um, cause, cause when I went into, um, or started to think about going into car magazines and motoring media, I, I thought, well, what do I really want to do? What would I want to achieve in doing this? Um, and I thought, well, actually what I'd like to do is to be a technical editor on a car magazine. You know, that's what I thought when I was doing my my engineering degree. Um, mm. and, and of course, a year in, I've done that. Uh, and so I thought, well, <laughs> right now, what do I do? What do I do now? You know, <laughs> I've, I've achieved every objective <laughs> I ever had. What, what do I what do I do now? Um, so so it was nice to then get the, the opportunity to be um, to be an editor, as you say, to, to run something of your own and, and to put your own stamp on it. Um, and one of the things that I've really certainly all through that period, I was very lucky with was that every time I started to get bored um I uh, you know and started to think well yeah I can do this job now what do I I want to do something else something mm. else came along 
you know so i i sort of got a handle on being a staff writer and then suddenly somebody says right you're going to be technical editor now and you're going to be actually um planning the technical content of this of this magazine you know um and and then once i'd sort of done that for a while and got a handle on that they came along and said right you're going to be deputy editor now and and really we wanted to run the whole thing so um so i was very lucky I i think it was partly luck and partly probably people looking out for me and saying well hang on this guy's you know he's he's ready for the next thing let's give him something so he doesn't go off somewhere else you know Mm. Um, yeah so how how many people were at uh, retro then retro uh we started with well basically there were um three of us there was um there was three of us plus a a designer um so it was it was it was me um we had a a technical writer uh technical editor um whose name is ben hardcastle um, and a guy called Pete Nivette, who was, um, in fact, a uh, he was had just been winner of the Guild of Motoring Writers. Um, get a plug in for the Guild, you see. Uh, Guild of Motoring <laughs> Writers uh, Sir William Lyons Award. Um, oh yeah. And the, and the William Lyons Award is is an award for young motoring writers, um, and has been. In fact, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of it. So it's got some, you look back in its history, it's got some really good names of people who, you know, won that award and then went into into being a motoring writer. Um, so Peter had just won that and, and he came to us. Uh, so it was it was the three of us that um, basically did everything. So uh, late nights. <laughs> yeah, a few late nights, yes. Um, lots, lots of travelling and late nights, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if... If you're gonna if you're gonna work in a magazine or any publication and you have a deadline, be prepared for leading up to that that you will be putting a lot of hours in. I think it's lesson one. Absolutely, and I think a, a lot of people don't understand and don't appreciate what deadlines really mean. It means you get it done, and if that means you know, I I had one which was actually on Fast Car, not on Retro, because I was always far too organised on Retro to, uh, to to let this happen. But on Fast Car, I remember one. Um, we we literally worked all through the night. We worked all through the mm. night. I went home at about six a.m., came back at nine a.m., um, and started again because um, we had a, a supplement to do or something. There was some flap on, you know, and and, um, and we were all there and we were all there working all the way through the night to get it to get it done. Um, and you can't be late on these things because there there is a whole process that goes on after you've done your little bit. Um, not least printing you know and um printing is uh if you're printing magazine and you are late getting stuff to the printer they will charge you they will sit there with yeah. their press doing nothing at all and they will charge you for the fact that it's doing nothing you know and, mm. and they'll charge you sign of ten thousand pounds an hour or something ridiculous so you can't be late you've got to get things but done. focuses the mind i would imagine it, it does somewhat focus the mind yes Particularly if, it's happen- if, if it's getting close to happening a second time. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, because um, so, that that's not as much of an issue with uh, digital online content because people sort of go shrug the shoulders and go, "Well, it's going to be a little bit late." Yeah, that's right. Um, Although even then, it, it it may not be that it's um, it's something that sort of um, looks like it's uh, there's any sort of obvious cost to it if it's a little bit late. But mm. but there can be a kind of a a commercial disadvantage in being late. You know, if you've got the first story on something, yeah. then that's where people are going to go. If you've got the story that comes out an hour later, 
then you've missed all that traffic. So you, you've still got sort of, the, there are still reasons why you need to be on the ball and you need to be getting things out the, uh, you know, at the right kind of time. So. Absolutely. So how did uh, how did Retro develop then? How did it, uh, I mean, uh, you immediately started obviously with a million uh, subscribers. Yeah, uh, really. <laughs> um, retro... Um, editorially i think retro was pretty good um and i can say that because it wasn't my idea so i'm <laughs> i'm not blowing my own trumpet <laughs> on that one somebody else came up with the idea and all i did was kind of make it happen um and it was pretty reasonable um the magazine as a whole didn't work um and i think the reason really why it didn't work was because the the ad team that we had on it at the time were a couple of fairly young guys um, and I don't think they particularly understood the the concept of what retro was about um, and and what they <clears throat> what they tended to do was to stick with the same advertisers that we already we as a company already had a relationship with on Fastcar and try mm. and get them to advertise in both um, whereas what they should have done was said well they should have said, this is a, a magazine for old cars. Let's go and find all those old car um, specialists that don't advertise in fast car because it doesn't deal with what they sell, um, but, but do, you know, to, is relevant to, um, to what's in, in retro. Um, and so I don't think they, I think they, they stuck with what they were kind of comfortable with, which was the people they already had a relationship with, rather than go out and find new clients that were, um, interested in the stuff that the magazine um, w was talking about. So, uh, kind of from an advertising point of view, really, you know, it, it sold okay. Um, from an advertising point of view, it didn't really work particularly well. Um, and and you've kind of got to get both of those two things working together. Um, yeah. So um, so retro lasted about um, ten months, something like that. Uh, about ten issues, I think. And then we stopped. Okay. Um, and I got a, uh, a sort of hauled in in front of the MD and he sort of said, what are we going to do about this? Are we going to carry on? Um, and um, what was decided we would do would, would be to stop, um, rethink the whole magazine for about, um, I think we spent a month or so doing that um, and relaunch it. And we relaunched it um, as a magazine called Classics. Um, okay. And Classics ultimately became Classics Monthly, uh, and is still with oh, us. Right. Um, so, uh, so that one, that one did succeed. Um, so that was, and that was the most interesting bit, really, because as you were saying earlier on about being able to sort of come to a magazine and and it be your own kind of project. Well, Classics really was my own project because me and the, and the team that that we had at the time. Um, because instead of being somebody else's idea and, and we just you know, made it happen based on a template we were already given, Classics really yeah. was very much a, a blank sheet of paper. What do you want to do? Um, and we, we created it between us. So do you, did you enjoy editing? Um, yes and no. Um, okay. It was... Start with the yeses. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... Uh... I, I enjoyed the um, the process and I enjoyed the creativity of it 
and the bit where we sort of sat around saying, what are we going to put in this thing? Because it's one of the things that, um, again, the, the students I work with sometimes struggle to, to understand and, and to appreciate is that, that they might work on a magazine project, but they can do a magazine stop and then think, Oof, you know, I'm glad that's over. Whereas when you're actually doing it in a publishing company, you, you do a magazine, you stop and then you do another one uh, and you do another yeah. one. And, and you can't be a week late on the first one because that means you've got a week less time to do the second one, you, you know, and then mm. it, and you have a knock-on effect. So, so you have to, you, you've got this sort of insatiable appetite for content and you have to keep on coming up with ideas and keep on feeding the beast, you know. And so I, I liked that creative part of the process where we would come up with ideas and think, right, how are we going to achieve that? Where do we, where do we shoot pictures that go with that where do we get the cars from how are we going to sort all of that out how long is it going to take what are we going to do um so i I really like that sort of creative part of the process um the there was a sort of an admin part of the process as well of being an editor that didn't really work um so well i mean it worked okay but i didn't really enjoy that so much but i suppose that's inevitable it kind of goes with the with the territory i I used to have a, a filing system i tell people this story a lot i used to have a filing system this is in the days before email, um, where everything came on a piece of paper. Um, so I had a um, an in tray, you know, it was one of those plastic trays that, that you have yep. on, on my desk, and everything used to go into the into the plastic tray. And so if somebody came and said, "Have you sorted out this this thing?" I could just go down through the piles of paper and pull it out and and deal with it. And and when the pile in my in tray got high enough that it would sort of you know, you get a pile of papers and they kind of slide and fall over. Yeah. <laughs> well, when it got to that height, I would take the top half and then take the bottom half out of the in-tray and throw it away, unread. <laughs> and, you know, on the grounds that anything that was important would have bubbled to the top by now. Somebody would have asked me for it or I would have had to go hunting for it. You know, So anything at the bottom was rubbish. So I used to, that's how I used to deal with it. Um, the analogue version of it, email bankruptcy. <laughs> yes, essentially, yes. <laughs> So um, I, uh, I suppose the thing that made me decide I didn't want to do it any longer, um, and I did it for five or six years, um, but the, the thing that sort of made me think I, uh, this, this, I'm missing something here is I remember sitting in, in the office um, and I was subbing, sub-editing a, a, a feature and it was a, a sort of not particularly well-written feature that kind of went round and round in circles and was quite hard to follow so i was trying to sort this thing out and make it a bit more a bit more interesting and a bit easier to for the reader to follow and there i was sort of embroiled in this story and trying to hack bits around to make it work better and there was nobody else in the office because they were all out on a photo shoot and i got this phone call back from one of the guys who was there uh who was sort of saying, oh, it's all going really well. Um, every All the cars that we asked for have turned up. It's a really nice day. You know, we're all enjoying it, having great fun. Uh, and the pictures look marvellous, and it's all going mar- to be wonderful. Um, and I thought, great, excellent, it's all going well. Put the phone down. And I thought, what am I doing here? <laughs> These people that work for me are all out having fun with a bunch of old cars on an airfield somewhere in bright sunshine. What am I doing here? I've got this all wrong. <laughs> so I've, I've just fundamentally, I've, I've done something wrong here. So, so I decided that was really the point where I decided that I ought to be out doing the fun stuff more rather than sitting in an office. 
Um, yeah. And that was the point where I decided I, I ought to go freelance. I think okay. it, it was it was actually it was that and there was one other thing, which was um, I got a phone call from somebody asking me to do a story on a, uh, a two seater Formula One car. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, well, this was 2002, which was the height of, of the craze for two seat Formula One cars. Um, <laughs> McLaren had one and Arrows actually had a three seater um, and Minardi had um, some two seat Formula One cars they built and they did some races with them as well. Um, and a, a former colleague of mine um, at the publishing company who'd gone freelance had set up this story to go and do a ride in the back of this two-seat Formula One car. Um, and it turned out he was too tall because you had to be a maximum of six foot or something. And he was, he was too tall. He couldn't fit in the car. Um, and the guy who he was doing it for had said, well, can you suggest somebody else who could do the story for us? Um, and for some reason, they decided that it would be a good idea if I did it. So they, they came to me and said, will you do it? Um, so I went and did this story. I went to Donington and, and had a ride in the back of this two-seat Formula One car, which was extraordinary. Um, <laughs> dri- driven by a guy called Matteo Bobby, who was the FIA GT world champion the following year. So he was pretty handy. Um, and uh, and interviewed Damon Hill, who was there, and all sorts of things. So a fantastic day. Um and I came back having done it and, and thought, I should be doing more of that sort of stuff, going out and doing these things. Um, and and that was a story that I could never have done in classics because mm. it just didn't fit what that audience wanted. And in fact, I did do a little tiny piece about it, but I couldn't do a proper feature about it because you've got to concentrate on any magazine or any um, any bit of the media, really. You've got to think about who is your audience and concentrate on what that audience wants. And a classic yeah. car magazine audience doesn't want to know about modern Formula One cars. They, they want to know about classic cars. So it just wasn't the right fit. So I, I, it kind of made me think, well, actually, there's all sorts of things that I would like to write about, all sorts of topics. Um, and I can't do that on this magazine yeah. because I have to concentrate just on this one, this one audience. And so, again, it was another thing that made me think, well, actually, I need, I need to do something else. Now, how long between coming to that realisation and stepping away from the magazine was what was the time scale um well all of that happened in 2002 um and by the end of that year i was freelance so i suppose it was it was probably six months it was pretty pretty quick process i think okay and uh how how long did it take you to build up a uh a sufficient freelance um was it, I suppose the, the way the, the, the work comes in or work so that uh, it made it viable for you? I, I was pretty, um, uh, well, I was going to say lucky. I suppose I was lucky. Uh, I was fairly well organized as well um, in that I suppose the thing that made it possible for me to do it um, and made it much more viable doing it the second time around than doing it when I'd just come out of university and was freelance. Mm. Um, the big difference between the two was when I'd just come out of university, I didn't know anybody, I didn't know what I was doing, I, I didn't have any understanding of what the industry wanted and how to interact with it. Um, having been a, a staff writer and an editor for eight, nine years, um, and then going freelance, I had obviously a much better understanding of what it was that a freelance needed to produce um 
And also I'd got a lot more, I got masses of contacts in the industry. Um, you know, so for example, one of the things that I did was pitch some ideas to James Elliott, who was at the time editor of Classic and Sports Car, um, who mm -hmm. I'd met at a number of events because we were both editors of magazines. And so we'd, we'd met at, you know, classic car shows and all sorts of things. Um, and so I, I knew James a bit. And so I pitched him some ideas. And so one of the first freelance um, jobs I did was a, a feature article for Classic and Sports Car. Okay. So, um, so I think I think if you're going to be successful as a freelance, you have to have you have to have an understanding of what it is that your your customers want, um, the the magazines or whoever it is you're going to work for, um, and um, and I think it's really helpful if you actually know some of the people that are involved, so you, you can you know so they've they've got an idea of who you are and you know because you're asking them to buy a product from you to trust you um, to go out and shoot some cars or whatever it is you know and spend money on locations and photographers and all the rest of it um and come up with something that's then publishable in in their magazine so if if it's somebody you've already got a bit of a relationship with who knows who you are um that's obviously it's a much easier process to try and um, get them to take you seriously yeah absolutely uh, yeah it oh, it's a cliche but knowing people is a big is a big thing um, I mean, Alan and I have found that when we first started, but you, we knew a few people off Twitter, but we, we hadn't met anybody really. I think Alan had met a couple of people beforehand, but then, uh, as, as time has gone on with this, we've met more and more people and it, it certainly helps so that when you ask a question or whatever, the, the, the person knows you and go, right, I understand where you're coming from. I can answer it properly for you or in the way that you're looking for or whatever. Um, uh, and yes, absolutely. They're, they're, the person who's going to be giving you money effectively for you doing something, they if they know who you are and understand you to a certain degree, then that uh, makes the decision easier for them. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it's not as simple as can you do the job or not. It's can you no. persuade somebody you can do the job, and that's much more difficult. Yeah, and and can I, and can you persuade them? Not only can you do the job, but you can do the job that they want. Yeah, absolutely. The job <laughs> because, they want. Uh, that's and... that's sometimes different from that that people don't always appreciate. Yeah. But it's it's their particular take on what when they say X, they mean one, two, and three. Yes. And it's understanding that as well. Absolutely. Uh, but that's that is experience of doing these things. It, it is, and and going back to what we were talking about earlier on about sort of blogging and publishing your own stuff. That's one of the really big sort of differences and, and the, the transitions you have to make from being a being a blogger, being a, somebody who, who does stuff on their own, is going from writing stuff that pleases you to writing stuff that pleases somebody else and works to mm. somebody else's brief. And that, that some people find that quite a difficult transition to make. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, you you didn't go back to another magazine full time or anything. You you've been no nope. freelance I, since. I have been freelance since the 29th of November 2002. Okay, that's some record. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no. But but considering how volatile the industry has been, I mean, it's it's always changing. Society is always changing. So yeah. of course, the industry is always changing. But through economic severe economic changes that we've gone through in this country to continue to work all that time is is quite impressive 
um, and must be a testament to uh, the quality of the stuff you put out. Well, um, I, I couldn't so, possibly. I, I couldn't. couldn't yes, possibly I, uh, that, that is that there. is a comment. I am merely saying that comment. There is no response that you can give to I, that. I mean, it, it is. That is one of the things that is. Um, and I was talking earlier about the the buzz that you get from sort of creating, you know, a magazine or something, and then seeing it in print and you think, "Wow, I did that." Um, you kind of get that from freelancing because you're always on a knife edge in that you are you are as good as the last thing you did um mm. and if the last thing you did was rubbish then you're rubbish um if the last thing you did was great then then you're great um but you you always have to sort of stay on that you know you're you're balancing on on that on that tightrope um uh and so you have to keep on trying to deliver the best quality stuff that you you possibly can um and you can't sort of think oh well i can't really be bothered this time around or i'm i feel a bit under the weather or you know what oh, i've got something else to do you you've you know if you want to be taken seriously you've got to put the effort in and try and deliver the best possible copy and try and deliver it on time and try and meet the brief that you were given um and and do all of these things to the best of your ability every time otherwise if if you coast then they'll the next time around they'll go and pick somebody else that they know won't coast that they know will actually deliver what they've asked for because mm. i mean the, the added the added uh incentive as well as you you like things like eating and uh, a roof <laughs> over your head and stuff like that and if you're freelance i mean the reality is you don't it's not being a member of staff somewhere where you still get paid even if you're off sick is you, know, you just alluded to there if you didn't feel well well tough because if i don't go out and do this i don't get paid Mm, that's a big problem. Absolutely, yeah. And you also need, I think you need to be somebody who's got uh, a, a fairly broad range of ability and interest in that. Um, you know, uh, if you're working for a company and your computer stops working, you call in the IT guy. Well, mm. I am my IT guy. Yes. I am my accountant. <laughs> I, I yeah. you know, I, I do all of these things. So I, I, if, if I'm not making enough money because I'm not doing enough, you know, the people aren't commissioning enough articles from me, I can't blame the sales department because I am the sales department, you know? Yes, I'm, you, you get, a, you get a, a very brutal understanding of what business is. Absolutely, yeah. But also so, uh, you're in control of all those things. So if you want to look at the positive yes. side, you can say, well, you know, I am in control of how much I work who I work for, I don't have to listen to anybody else's, you know, abide by somebody else's policy. I can set my own policy. I can do what I want. And so that flexibility is, you know, is really um, attractive, I think, or it is to me anyway. I mean, some people would, would look at it and say, yeah, but you don't know how much you're going to earn next month. How can you possibly deal with that? You know, um, and, and it would be terrible. So I, there are pros and cons, but it, it it's always hmm. been something that, um, has appealed to me and and um, it, I, it's a nice way of working I think because you've got that flexibility to do all sorts of different things. What sort of uh, magazines or niches within the motoring world are your uh, are your pieces in? Well it, it varies um, a lot actually uh, and has varied over that time quite a lot so I have done obviously I, I've done things that are um, sort of related to 
what I know about um, and what people know me for. And those two areas largely are automotive technology um, and um, and classic cars. Um, so I've written for classic car magazines mm-hmm. and still do. Um, over time, I've also done um, things based on automotive technology. Um, and, and these things sort of come and go. So, for example, I, I did um, a few years ago, I got a call from um, a magazine called uh, European Automotive Design, which was, uh, you know, a, a, an automotive engineering magazine and de- dealt with all sorts of sort of emerging technology in, in um, uh, across the industry. Um, and they had a, a column written by Jeff Daniels, who was um, a, a brilliant automotive engineering writer, was technical editor of Autocar, I think, in the 70s. Um, and then later on wrote for performance car and all sorts of people and, and wrote really, you know, he was a proper engineer. He was an aeronautical engineer and, and knew what he was talking about. And he, he, he no, <laughs> a proper I, engineer. People who don't, but, but he was, yeah, he was a m- much more of an engineer than I was. Um, but he, uh, he um, wrote this uh, sort of regular story, irregular column in, uh, in European automotive design um, and, um, and died. Um, and uh, and they they were sort of desperate to find somebody else to not quite fill the shoes because Jeff was a big bloke um, and I'm not. Uh, I, I, I met him I met him at breakfast once on a on a launch, and and he sort of shuffled aside to to um, uh, to make space for me. And he he was like I say he was a big bloke. He he was his nickname was Two Dinners because he would quite <laughs> happily eat two dinners. Two dinners, Daniel. <laughs> Um, and as he shuffled aside to make space for me, he looked me up and down. He said, you're one of those irritating thin people, aren't you? Um, <laughs> but he um, but he was a lovely bloke, but I, I couldn't sort of physically fill his shoes. But, uh, but anyway, I took over doing that that column, which which was um, a massive sort of um, uh, achievement for me um, at, at the time. Um uh, and it's unfortunate the circumstances in which it had to happen, but it, 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 I was very proud of the fact that somebody was coming to me and saying, we used to have Jeff Daniels, who was a god as far as I was concerned, and unfortunately we, we can't use Jeff anymore, and we think you might be able to do something that is somewhere near the same sort of same sort of quality. That, and, it, uh, you know, that's that's one of the nicest things ever, anybody's ever said to me, really, you know, to, to sort of well, be yeah, mentioned I mean, in that's, the same uh, breath. That's fantastic. We're terribly British yeah. uh, a lot of the time that, you know, we, and I, I'm just as guilty of that uh, as anyone, that you don't want to, it, it's very hard to acknowledge a compliment sometimes, or most of the time. Mm. Uh, and it, it's, having the ability to look at when somebody asks you to do something if you if you go but that's amazing i can't wait to do that yeah that is that is because they think you're good enough to do it and that is a compliment and um i i know we we we're very good in this country of pulling people down who who do well um so sometimes we have to take a a bit of a step back and acknowledge what we've done and how how we've got there, and uh, and what we've achieved, and that that's not always easy in this country to do, uh, from a psyche point of view. No, I think that's, um, I think that's true, and I, and I think in it, it applies throughout um, motoring media, probably media um, uh, generally. That as I've said before, people don't 
say these things for fun. They mm. they say it because they're they're trying to actually you know they're they're trying to achieve something. They're trying to create some content, produce a, a product, and they're not going to mess about. If you're the right yeah. person for the job, you're the right person for the job. Absolutely. And that's the end of part one of my conversation with Andrew. Fear not, though. Part two is coming next week, so stay tuned. Thanks once again to Andrew for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I have. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. If you want to get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. If you like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support everything we do at Motoring Podcast in a couple of ways. Please go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about the show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of these great people who come on here. So until next time, that was Andrew Noakes. I've been Andrew Clues and safe motoring.